Good morning. Hope you're doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25. We have been studying through the book of Acts for a while now. And we are starting at uh, verse 1 of chapter 25. We are uh, getting close to the end. So I don't know if y'all have been with us for all 50 sermons or whatever it's been. But uh, we're getting close. We're getting close. Um, anyway, uh, at, at Remedy, we uh, <clears throat> read the text out loud. So if you are able, I'd love it if you'd stand with me. And we're going to start at verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 22. At the end of the time, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You'll say, thanks be to God, signifying obviously a couple things. One, you're thankful that the Lord would give you his, his verses, his, his, his scripture, his text. And then secondly, uh, by saying thanks be to God, you're, you're also in your heart and mind saying, Lord, the things I hear and uh, discern and learn today from the Holy Spirit, I want to say yes to, I want to obey. So starting at verse 1 of chapter 25. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took a seat on the tribunal, ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither the laws of the Jews nor Against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go on up to Jerusalem and be tried with these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as well as yourselves, as, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and I have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give them up to me. No one can give me up to them. Sorry. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had confessed to his counsel, I'm sorry, conferred to his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there for many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not uh, a custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. So when they came together, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge on his case of such evils as I suppose. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion, about certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss on how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
You can have a seat. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, helping us see how Paul interacts with people and how he continues to want to proclaim your word and how we can be faithful as well to do the same, how we can proclaim Christ to the people we know in our lives. I pray that you would uh, come now and help me speak with clarity and give good application for us all and that most of, most of all that God our, our minds and our hearts would be turned towards Jesus, uh, the author and perfecter of our faith who uh, though had the cross set before him, uh, endured it with much joy, and that we, at the our end of our time, would not just think about how to tell others well about Christ, but God, our, our love for Jesus would be increased, and we would worship you uh, in spirit and truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let, let me just state the obvious. I understand what you're probably thinking. If you've been here for any certain period of time, these chapters are starting to sound familiar. Um, rinse and repeat. That people want to kill Paul. Here's another person that he's got to stand before, try to make a case, etc. I get it. And I, 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 I agree. And uh, my goal every week is to try to take similar sounding occurrences that are being kind of woven together from chapter 23 on and take a fresh new slant each week on how to think biblically about big picture topics like evangelism, the sovereignty of God, and suffering and persecution. That's kind of the... Uh, the reoccurring things that are happening uh, on a grand scale from really chapter 23 once Paul's been arrested as we get to the end. So uh, that's what I'm going to do again today. I'm going to try to attempt. I will say that some of the things we're going to look at in 25 um, will be things that you're familiar with. But just to quote somebody that maybe you all heard of, a guy named Matt Chandler, he says something like this uh, constantly. It's not that most of us need to learn new material all the time. Because most of us have a lot of material we already know that we're not already being obedient to. So this might be some things that are, that are you know, definitely you've heard before. But that's okay. Because there's a whole lot, and me too, there's a whole lot of things that, that I know that I could probably be, be obedient to rather than just having to quest for new knowledge, new knowledge, and forget to maybe obey some of the stuff that I've been told forever. So um, there might be some things in, in here, this text, uh, applications that we make that you've probably thought about, heard about. But I want to go ahead and uh, review those. These are in the text, and these, this is what the Lord has given us today. So I want to look at those again, uh, and hopefully we'll take a little bit of a fresh slant on it, uh, and maybe um, we'll all be challenged anew. Now, um, you should, if you would, actually uh, flip over, or maybe you don't have to, to chapter 25, uh, starting at verse 23. Starting at verse 23. You'll see there, it says, on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came, Bernice came with great pomp. And then when you get down to 26, 1, you're going to see that Paul is going to make a defense in front of King Agrippa, whom he just mentioned there at the very end. So, and you can see there's a rather lengthy, Paul gives his, his conversion again. That would be the third time in the book of Acts. That would start at verse 12. And there's a, there's a rather long kind of uh, big explanation and speech that Paul makes before Agrippa. That, that is, it's a pretty, it's a pretty massive text, which we will be getting to next week. It is jam-packed with lots of amazing stuff. Now, the narrative that we're looking at, if, if that King Agrippa is kind of the mountaintop of, of speeches, uh, the, the narrative that we're looking at today is going to get us to the base of the mountain. 
So today's kind of the, the walk to the base of the mountain, and then next week we'll summit the mountain. However, here's the good thing. Um, since all of Scripture is God's Word, the walk to the base of the mountain is God's Word, and the walk up the summit to the top of the mountain next week is God's Word, and it's all God's Word, and it all is good for us. So this isn't like the, you know, the B text, and next week is the A text, or anything like that. It's all God's Word. Um, and so just a bit of review as well. This is, looking at today, the fourth speech that Paul is going to be making in front of people. The first two are in front of Israel. That was 21, 40, 23, 1. And now, uh, last week we looked at Felix, 24, 1 and following. Today we're looking at, uh, we're looking at Festus, 25, 1. And next week we'll be looking at King Agrippa. That's 26, 1 really is when it starts. So uh, today we're looking at Festus. Now, if you want to uh, know who Festus is, if you look at the previous verse uh, in chapter 24, th- that would be 24, 27. We, if you weren't here last week, we'll know who this guy Festus is. He's the one that replaced Felix. Felix was uh, the governor in Caesarea uh, for the entire time that Paul was there for two years. And then you can see in verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So, Portius Festus, this is the new guy we see in verse 25.1 that says, now after three days, Festus. Now, he's the new guy that's on the scene. He's different than Felix. He was only in this post for two years. He dies after two years. And he is more just and more moderate than Felix. If you remember, Felix was the former slave that became uh, the governor, and, and he ruled uh, pretty ruthlessly. Uh, Felix is, I'm sorry, Festus is a little bit different. He's a little more just, a little more modest, uh, a little more moderate. Uh, but, you know, we'll see in a little bit that he also has a little bit of political streak uh, in him as well. Uh, Felix, actually, you can see he was, Felix was uh, succeeded by Portius Festus. Felix was actually called back to Rome to defend himself against a uh, savage suppression that he had done between Jews and Syrians. And their civil rights that were uh, being kind of abused in Caesarea. And he was taken back to Rome to try to defend himself. Remember his brother Pallas, uh, Felix's brother Pallas is the one that got him this position. And without Pallas kind of bailing him out in, in, in Rome, he would have been severely punished. But he, he has kind of been removed from his, from his uh, time. And he fades out of history. Like we don't, we don't hear much more about Felix. All of this work that Paul did, we don't know whether Felix faded out of history because he became a Christian and no one cared about him anymore, or we don't know any of that gospel work that Paul sowed in in his life that we saw last week. We just know that Felix faded out of history. And some 2,000 years, we're still looking at this guy named Paul. So perhaps, and I like to think of it, perhaps uh, Felix and his wife, Drusilla, uh, eventually when they went back, you know, had a, had a moment where they realized, oh, we need, to, we need to get our lives straight, and they came to Christ. Uh, Paul, Paul sowed the seeds, and, you know, we'll find out in heaven what happened. But Felix kind of fades out of history at this particular point. And now here we have Festus taking over. Now, the one thing I want to make sure we, we don't forget here, in verse 27 of chapter 24, it says, when two years had elapsed. That's a long time to be in jail, uh, for Paul, especially when he's completely innocent. It's not like he's guilty. He's completely innocent, which he's repeatedly said to people, and he is in this house arrest situation. Remember, what Paul wants to do since he got converted, and all he's done is, as a free man, 
roamed around in circles doing missionary journeys over and over and over. And that's all he wants to do with the rest of his life. So to be captured and put in prison and not allowed to be a missionary, which is his life's calling, and kind of stuck in one place for two whole years, this is not uh, something he enjoys, especially knowing that the charges that against him are innocent. Just waiting for two whole years, some, you know, 700 days or so, uh, waiting to be set free. That's a long time. John Calvin speaking on persecution that comes to Christians like this and the injustices that they have sometimes. He says, Christ's servants must be all the more courageous to carry on through good and evil reports. And they should not think of it as anything remarkable that evil is spoken against them when they have done good. And at the same time, they must also easily defend themselves before men when the opportunity arises, which Paul is going to do here again. So Paul is here for two years, awaiting and awaiting, trying to get out, because all he wants to do is go be a missionary again. Uh, now, while he's here for two years, we should also just kind of notice uh, a highlight of the work of, of God's sovereignty here. Felix, as I said, has opposed him for two years. Paul, all he wants is a bribe, and Paul won't give him a bribe. So maybe he's, he's, Felix supposed that Paul was, was being bankrolled by somebody. Uh, we don't know, but I don't think Paul really had a lot of money to give him, uh, but but he nevertheless tried to get a bribe from Paul for two years, and he never would go. And God finally moves uh, Felix away, and Paul remains faithful. And we've already seen that Paul kind of uh, summarizes this entire time that he's had um, uh, of being in prison by saying that he gives thanks to the Lord that he's been in prison. He says it in, in Philippians chapter 1. Uh, in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So uh, he's, he's willing to say, uh, well, I want to be a missionary going on these missionary journeys, but since God has kind of stuck me in this jail, this is where God wants me to be on mission. This is where God wants me to tell people about Jesus. And he's even able to say, I, I thank God that I'm in jail. Because I've been able to tell everybody around here that I'm a prisoner for Christ. And he's, he's telling people about Jesus. And no doubt, there's probably people coming to Christ there. So uh, he says, you know, that he's praising God for his imprisonment. And as a matter of fact, um, one thing that we can, even, we can even remember is two years is a long time to, to be sitting in jail. And two years is a long time to be sitting in jail if you're innocent. But Paul takes this opportunity to redeem the time. Uh, you've maybe heard of this. That there's things called the prison epistles, the prison letters. So Paul doesn't just sit there ticked off for two years and just say, well, I'm just going to wait till I get out and do nothing. No, instead, for two years, Paul takes the opportunity and writes great pieces of work for us called Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and Philemon. He pens four great letters that we have studied some of these already. And so he takes an opportunity to redeem the time. Even uh, Martin Luther King Jr., I know this is a more contemporary thing, but he's, he's whenever he was in uh, a Birmingham jail, penned maybe one of his most famous shorter works, uh, Letters from a Birmingham Jail. So there's, there's opportunities whenever things and injustices are happening to you where you can always redeem the time. So when we're looking at Paul here and we're looking at chapter 25, we're going to see uh, notes for evangelism, the, some, some, some helpful pieces of advice for thinking about everyday evangelism and what can, it, what can it look like. So the first thing I want us to look at, you can go ahead and put up the title, uh, the next page. Uh, notes for evangelism, boom. Five notes for effective evangelism. Number one, put it up, is this. You should redeem the time that you have because all is a gift from God. Paul, 
two years in jail, doesn't just say, well, God's got me here for a little while. I'll wait till he gets me out, and then I'll start doing something. No. Instead, he, he takes the opportunity to be a prisoner and say, God wants me to sit down and have a writing ministry right now. So he, he writes for the entire time that he's there. And again, he writes Ephesians and Colossians, which are really kind of like cousin letters. If you put the two of them together, they're very similar. Why? Because he's in the same kind of circumstances whenever he's, whenever he's writing them. He's probably, I think he probably wrote Colossians first, then Ephesians. But nevertheless, he also wrote Philippians and even wrote Philemon. Um, and you, I'm sure you know about Philemon. who's was a runaway slave who's been uh, kind of exhorted by Paul to say, when the runaway slave comes back to you, uh, Philemon, Onesimus ran away from you, but he has, you have every right to, to treat him as a slave, but don't treat him as a slave. Treat him as a brother. As a matter of fact, I'll even pay some money for you. It's, it's an amazing letter, uh, a boldness that Paul has in that letter. So the first thing, though, is this. Redeem the time that you have, because everything is a gift from God. We see Paul redeeming the time he has as a prisoner for two years, writing letters, visiting people, still doing the work of the evangelist. evangelist. And we, we know from Philippians that he's, he, he says, the whole imperial guard has heard about my imprisonment for Christ. So he redeems the time. There's no doubt about it as a prisoner for, uh, for effective evangelism. So um, you might not be a prisoner. Hopefully, you know, if you're here, you're probably not. Uh, but nevertheless, you still have downtime, right? We all have downtime. Downtime during the week, if you have a lot of children, you, you're like, what's downtime? I, I know. Um, but, but some of you have downtime, right? And let's just, let's just, let's just think about this in a, in a Christ-like way. God gives us such a small amount of time here while, while, we're, while we're believers. Let's make sure uh, that we're using it all for Christ. So how can you make sure daily, the, day, the downtime that you're getting, that you're, you're redeeming that and using that for Christ? You know, that you're, you're wanting to make sure that you're using all of your downtime for Jesus. You're not just using it in a banal way that just kind of passes the time but doesn't do anything to advance the gospel. It doesn't do anything to advance uh, his kingdom. So how can you use your downtime to uh, glorify Christ? Now, let's keep going. Let's get into the text this week. So it says, After three days, Festus had arrived in the province. He went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So he, he gets right to work as he arrives. He wants to understand after only being in Caesarea three days, Festus goes to Jerusalem uh, to meet with the Jews that have brought this false claim and this false case against Paul. He wants to find what's going on. Uh, and it says, Now three days after Festus had arrived to the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking for a favor against Paul, that he summoned him to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush to kill him on the way. So as soon as Festus gets to Caesarea, he goes down to Jerusalem, and the people that, that were there that were saying, we want to kill Paul, they're, they're still trying to make this case. I, we're presuming that these are a new set of men since the other men had said, I'm never going to eat again until Paul's dead, and it's two years later. So those guys have probably died of hunger, and there's a new people that are there. Uh, that's all we can guess, unless they broke their vow, and that's a whole another bad deal to do before God. But anyway, uh, they're still planning the same thing, right? Uh, can you bring him to Jerusalem? Because when he's coming to Jerusalem, we want to kill him on the road. Uh, we want him to die. So Festus hears all this, uh, and he, he basically tells him no. He says, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea. No, he's in Caesarea, and that uh, he's not going to come down, Paul's not going to come down to Jerusalem. If you want to 
have something against Paul, I'm going to go back up to Caesarea. You can see, so he said, let the men of authority among you go back to Caesarea with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges. And he stayed there for about eight or ten more days, and then he went to Caesarea. So like, he's like, no, I'm not, not bringing him down here. I'm going back, and if you have something you want to bring against him, you can do that. And so he goes back up and uh, you know, waits for, Paul, waits for them to get there. Now, what we can see here is this, that uh, the Jews now... Uh, have twice tried to plan to kill Paul on this road between Jerusalem and Caesarea. I think it was 30 or 60 miles, one of those two. They're trying to, uh, they're trying to get Paul whenever uh, he's on the road to kill him. And twice he's been saved by Roman officials. The first one was Lysias who snuck him out of Jerusalem in the middle of the night with 470 soldiers protecting him and got him to Caesarea. And here, it's a refusal by Festus to say, no, I'm not bringing him back. So twice, God has sovereignly used Roman officials that have no reason, they're not Christians, no reason to want to protect Paul other than the sovereign hand of God turns the hearts of the king. So here we see God being... uh, Mighty and sovereign in keeping Paul alive. So we should also, as we look at this in regard to our own evangelism and our own thinking of how God's directing us, the second thing is we want to live our life trusting in the sovereign hand of God to order our steps. Paul's steps are being ordered because the king's who have no interest in being Christian, Paul's steps are being ordered to be, stay alive because God's protecting him with, with the Roman kings, the Roman governors. Um, and in the same way, uh, our lives are being protected by the sovereign hand of God. Every step that you take, every breath that you breathe, every, every uh, day that you're living, all these things are precious gifts to you from God. So uh, how can you... Make sure that since God's sovereign hand is ordering your steps, just like he's ordering Paul's, that you're walking in obedience to Christ. Where do you need to trust God more in your life, especially when it comes to evangelism? Where is it that God's ordering your steps to be able to talk about Christ to people that perhaps you're not letting him uh, direct your heart the way that he would direct these people? So that's the second thing is consider deeply where is the Lord ordering my steps? God, where are, and ask him, where are you ordering my steps that you want me to go, that you want me to be obedient, that you are directing me so that there's people that I can come into contact with, that I can meet, that you want me to know, that you want me to tell people about Christ. So the first one is redeem the time. Use every down moment that you have for, for the glory of Christ, not just banality. The second one is uh, where can you trust God to order your steps? Uh, what's going on in your life where perhaps you're trying to order your own steps uh, and the Lord's leading you to do something different? Now, we get into verse 6 and he says, after eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea and the next day he took his seat. So, I mean, this guy's this guy um, pretty pretty amazing. Festus, whenever he's, he's there three days, he goes down, he stays there for a little bit, eight or ten days. The very next day, he gets back to Caesarea. He sits down. I think he just wants this, this one particular case to be over. It's kind of the, the perpetual case that's been hanging around for two years that Felix just kept kicking the can down the road. He gets in, we need to end this. And so he says the next day he went there, he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem, stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him that they could not prove. That they could not prove. So um, the charges that they were bringing against him could not just be religiously oriented. So uh, what what they're charging is, what the Jews hate about Paul is 
he doesn't, uh, in their mind, subscribe to their religious thoughts about the Old Testament, the law, and especially whenever he talks about Christ, they can't stand it. And you can't put, some, in Roman government, you can't put someone to death because you don't like their religious views. It has to, for the Romans, who are, who are pretty much atheistic in, in this regard, you, you can have your religious views, that's fine with me, but we, the Roman government, are not going to kill people you don't like just because they differ from you theologically. Rome has to have some kind of reason to think um, their theology affects our Roman government in some kind of way to where we need to squash that, we need to kill it. So the Jews are busy trying to pick out the, the Jewish theological laws that Paul's breaking and also try to show Rome those laws that he's breaking is somehow going to hurt your government. It's going to make Rome not as powerful. And so uh, they knew that they couldn't just br- bring charges against Paul that were just religiously oriented. They also had to create reasons to make Rome feel threatened by Paul. And so uh, that's what they're trying to do. But we see here as... as Dr. Luke tells us uh, in verse 7, uh, when he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around bringing many and serious charges against him, but they couldn't prove any of them. And, and the Roman government was decently sophisticated that without any kind of proof, they're not just going to take the word of these particular people. Uh, John Stott says this, the Jews knew that the Roman governors were unwilling to convict on purely religious charges and therefore tried to give a political twist to the religious charge. Just like I said, they were trying to make it sound political. The, Paul was opposing the Roman government as well, but it wasn't happening. Um, and we should expect, just like Paul has, uh, that there's going to be a men that, that oppose. Spurgeon says, we, should, we ought never to fear those who are defending the wrong side, for since God is not with them, their wisdom is folly, their strength is weakness, and their glory is their shame. There, there are going to be a people that oppose God uh, just like these particular people, and it, it shouldn't surprise us that people feel that way. But whenever they do, as Spurgeon says, we ought never to fear those who are defending the wrong side, like these particular people. For since God's not with them, their wisdom is their foolishness. That's what folly is. Their strength is actually their weakness, and their glory is their shame. Now, Luke doesn't tell us exactly what particular charges the Jews were trying to conjure up to make Rome feel like uh, they were being threatened. He doesn't tell us what those charges are. However... However, from verse 8, we see that Paul does, against those charges, make a three-pronged defense against those charges. And you can see the three-pronged defense that, that Paul makes. Paul argued in his defense, after they're trying to bring all these charges that couldn't stick, that neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the law of the temple, nor against the law of Caesar... Has he committed any offense? So those first two, you can see, he's defending himself against the, the Jewish kind of theological laws that they were trying to say, which Rome doesn't even care about. And then he goes into that third place. where They were trying to make connections to Caesar. And you can see, but also neither against Caesar has he committed any offense. That's the part that Rome cares about. And Paul's saying, Jews, you're wrong, and I haven't done anything against Caesar. None of these things are true. So we, we don't know exactly what they said, but we do know from Paul's three-pronged defense, which, by the way, we should realize, verse 8 is just a summary. Like, Paul went on for a long time here, but we don't have everything that Paul said. We just know Luke's just, as he's writing this narrative, giving us a very, very brief summary of what Paul made his defense. I'm sure it was very long. As a matter of fact, if we dive deeper, uh, it's going to help us see another thing about evangelism. As I said, verse 8 is summarized, and this brevity 
of Luke in verse 8 doesn't give us much of the contents of what Paul uh, says in in regard to his defense. Uh, But even though we don't know the full content, we do know a little bit of insight. Not the full content, but some insight between the back and forth between Paul and his accusers. And we can see that because we read it in verse 19. If you remember, as we read verse 19, we get a little bit of the back and forth. Uh, We don't know the the full detail, but we know the substance of what it was. The substance of the, the conversation and this back and forth between the accusers and Paul is the resurrection of Jesus. It's the gospel. You can see it in verse 19. Whenever, uh, this is later on, whenever Festus is explaining to Agrippa, well, this is what happened whenever they were talking to each other. Uh, Festus is, is just kind of uh, vamping, and he says, rather they had certain points of dispute about him with their own religion, that's the Jews, and about a certain Jesus who's dead. That's what the Jews are saying. But Paul asserted to be alive. So in that back and forth between verses 7 and 8, when the Jews and, and Paul are kind of making their, their defense, the one thing that sticks out, this is pretty awesome, and Festus's mind about this whole discussion is, well, there's something about this resurrection that's really making everybody mad. The substance of some of the, the content from verses 7 and 8 that we see when Paul's making his defense, the substance of it is the gospel. Whenever he says, uh, a, uh, a certain man that they say Jesus was dead, whom Paul has already asserted, asserted to be alive. Now, this is what we do know. When we, when we talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus, we know that Paul has already termed that as the gospel or the good news. I'll read it to you. Perhaps you're very familiar, but I'll read it to you anyway. From 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that he'll remind us of the gospel, the good news. He says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Gospel, euangelion, it just means good news. The good news about Jesus. The reason why it's good is because Jesus came and took our place and died the death that we should have died. Every single one of us deserved that death, and yet he took it for us. And by dying on the cross, uh, whenever we trust in him, we put our faith in him, his righteousness is then imputed to us. That's really good news. All of the death that we deserve was given to him, and all of his innocence and purity and righteousness given to us. That's really good news. That's why it's called good news. And he said, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you in which you received and now which you stand, by which you're also being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And here it is. He tells us what that good news is, the gospel. Verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared. And you just you can keep going to over 500 people. So Paul's already told us, when we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus, his death and his resurrection, this is good news and this is the gospel. And what we see here um, in verses 7 and 8 uh, in Paul's defense uh, and his argument that he's making with these particular people is he has moved over to the uh, discussion of the gospel. Now, if you remember, one of the main charges that the Jews had against Paul was desecration of the temple. Desecration of the temple. That they had said Paul had brought one of the Gentile Ephesians uh, into the temple with him. And it's quite interesting how the case against Paul has moved from desecration of the temple to the resurrection of Jesus. Right? Isn't that amazing? Just think about who is it Who's the key player here 
who has the brilliant mind to think, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to somehow move this conversation away from desecration of the temple, which is a wrong thought, which is totally false, to the resurrection of Jesus, where we're harping about this guy Jesus, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Who would be the key mastermind that would be able to be able to do something like that? The answer is Paul. So like, here's what we say. Um, if Paul is doing this, he does not, one thing we can certainly guess is this. Paul never stops talking about the good news of Jesus. He never stops thinking about it. He never stops moving the conversation towards it. And he always wants people to think about it. So here's what we can say. Here's what we can deduce from this. Even when you're on trial for your life, it's never a bad time to talk about the gospel. Ever. Even whenever you're defending yourself in court, in front of people. It's never a bad time to talk about the gospel or Christ's resurrection. So number three, number three, it's never a bad time to talk about Jesus' resurrection. That's a pretty effective uh, note for evangelism, I would say. Because if you're ever wondering, I wonder if I should talk about Jesus right now. Yes. I wonder if this is a bad time to tell this particular person about what Christ has done. No, it's not. It's not. It's just, I can't, I can't conceive of a time where God's going to be like, no, don't talk about me right now. That, this would be a bad time. I can't conceive of a time. So, let's just ask the obvious question. And don't answer this out loud because you feel like me, you're going to be like, oh, all the time. When are you missing out about talking about Jesus? When are the t- occasions throughout your day, throughout your week, throughout your month where you know, oh, this is the perfect chance, and yet you thought maybe it wasn't? What, we, what I think we can all agree on, um, just from a, take a big giant, big giant step back and think about life, we know that there's not really ever a time that's bad to talk about Jesus. In the middle of it, we think, oh, this isn't, this isn't a good time. This is, probably, this is probably a time where I shouldn't. But I mean, in this particular time, Paul is in court arguing for his own life and still somehow moves the conversation over to the resurrection. So... I don't think that it's ever a bad time for us to talk about Christ's resurrection in the gospel. Now, let's keep going over to verse 9. We're going to see Festus. Um, he's going to have a little bit of Felix in him here, right? Uh, Felix was a political fella, always trying to play, always trying to get favor. He, here we can see, um, even though Felix, I'm sorry, Festus is different than Felix, he still is wanting to curry some favor with the Jews. He's new to town. He's wanting to try to get some political capital. Verse 9 But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and be tried on on these charges before me? So he's saying, we're in Caesarea, but all these people from Jerusalem, why don't you go back there and we can have the big trial there? That's likely trying to uh, curry favor with the Jews, as it says, Paul says that, I'm sorry, Luke says that. Uh, Paul's not going to agree to that. Now, if he were to go back to Jerusalem, um, Jerusalem. If you remember, there was a high priest, Ananias, who wasn't a very nice guy, was the one that was kind of leading that, that charge. Ananias is gone. He's not there anymore. There's a new high priest of the Sanhedrin called uh, Ishmael, um, and Paul would have faced him. But Paul, uh, in verse 10, you can see perhaps, perhaps remembering his nephew's advice where, hey, uh, there's some people that want to kill you on the road. Paul's probably thinking, yeah, I bet they still want to kill me on the road. So, uh, no, I think I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm not going to go to Jerusalem. Uh, they, 
that, that trek down there would mean death. And so I, I think I'm just going to stay here. But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. Uh, to the Jews I have done no wrong, as you, your, know, as you yourselves know very well. So Paul is like, no, nah, I'm, I'm going to stay here. Because Luke's already told us if he were to go, he's going to die. So smart decision, Paul. Good job. Uh, now, at this particular point, Paul's starting to realize Festus is not going to rule his way. The Jews are not going to give up. And so the only option he has here is since Festus isn't going to help him and the Jews are not going to stop and he's got really no help from Rome or from, from, from the Jews is just to appeal to a higher source. So in verse 11, uh, he's going to say, the only way I can get out of this is to just appeal to Caesar so, because these people aren't going to do anything. So in verse 11, you can see, if I'm a wrongdoer and I've committed anything which I deserve to die, I do not to, seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give them up to me. And he realizes that there's no help from Festus or from the Jews. So he says, I appeal to Caesar. Now, this appealing to Caesar is Paul's right as a Roman citizen. Whenever he's a Roman citizen, he is uh, protected. And so he has the right to uh, appeal to Caesar. And that protects him from unjust punishment, unjust execution, unjust torture without trial. Um, it, it protects him from wrongful private and public arrests and from even actual uh, trials by judges or magistrates that are outside Rome. So this is what's going on. He's having these things outside Rome. He has the right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar and go all the way to Rome and be seen by the magistrates there. So that's what he does. He appeals here in verse 11 to Caesar. Now, um, we've been saying as we've been going through the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that Acts chapter 1, 8, if you haven't been here, is kind of the summary statement of the entire book of Acts. It's Luke, as he's writing, saying, this is what I'm writing this entire book about. In Acts chapter 1-8, it says this, But you will receive my power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And there's three main purposes given in Acts chapter 1-8 about what God is accomplishing throughout the entire book of Acts. One, you're going to be witnesses. That's the first thing. You're going to be witnesses. Two, you're going to be witnesses by the power of the Holy Spirit. Boom, Acts 2, Holy Spirit comes. You're going to be witnesses. It's going to be because of the Holy Spirit. Purpose 3 is you're going to be witnesses in starting right here in Jerusalem. Then it's going to spread out to Judea and Samaria. And then it's going to go to the ends of the earth of what we, what we know. Now, they knew Spain at the particular time. But for them, it's going to get as far as it possibly can. And so Luke, as he's writing this particular book, is wanting you to see those three purposes happen. That they're going to be witnesses, which they're going to be. That it's going to be because of the Holy Spirit, which happens in Acts 2. And that it's going to get all the way to the ends of the earth. Right here, in verse 11 of chapter 25, purpose number three becomes fulfilled. This sentence that Paul says, I appeal to Caesar, is the thing that sends Paul to Rome. It is the thing that, that causes the book of Acts to end. Because when Paul finally gets to Rome, Luke's done writing. The Holy Spirit and, and all the witnesses have now gotten to what we would be the ends of the earth. They've gotten to Rome. I can stop writing. You're Acts 29 now. You're, you're, you're the church. You carry it out. So by uttering this, this phrase in Acts uh, 25, 11, I appeal to Caesar, the purpose of the entire book of Acts, and really what God is wanting to do in the first century um, with these first apostles is being fulfilled. It's being fulfilled. Now here's the funny part. <laughs> or maybe funny is not the right word. Paul wouldn't find it funny. Um, but here's the interesting part, okay? So in one sense, with Acts 
2511, God's purpose is being fulfilled. Watch this. Acts um, 26. Oh, and by the way, I should say, not only the, God's purpose in Acts 1-8 is being fulfilled, but Paul's desire. In Acts 19.21, he says, I want to go to Rome. So his own personal desire and God's purpose are being fulfilled with him saying, I appeal to Caesar. All there with that, those short four words, I appeal to Caesar. Now, what we're going to see, ironically, is this. Whenever you get to the end of chapter 26, verse 32, Paul, this is, we'll see all this you know, in the coming weeks. But Paul, after he makes this case to Agrippa, uh, and Agrippa hears all this, and he knows as Agrippa hears this, Paul's already... Paul's already appealed to Caesar, so he's going to Rome no matter what. But Agrippa hears this, who's a little bit more powerful than Festus, and has the power, if Agrippa does, to shut this whole thing down. It says this, and Agrippa said to Festus, after he hears all this, if this man, this man could have been set free, had he not appealed to Caesar. Ha, 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 dagger in the heart. You're like, <laughs> so, like, he appeals to Caesar, which gets him to Rome, which fulfills God's purpose and his own heart's desire in Acts 19.21. But this little sentence here that, that, that he says, it's like if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, he'd be free. He wouldn't even have to go to Rome. He could go to Rome on his own volition, not via prisoner. So I just look at all that and I think to myself, man, what? But it reminds me of this. This is what it reminds me of. Here's point number four. God's plans to spread his name and his fame do not always include our safety. They don't always include our safety. We know that when Paul gets to Rome, he dies. He's killed for his faith. And so God's purpose and Paul's desire was to get to Rome, and that happens. And he finds out later if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, but had just gone on trial and let uh, King Agrippa hear him, he would have been set free. But that, that wasn't God's plan. It didn't include Paul's safety. It included him getting there God's way. Not Paul's way. And I didn't put any verses there. That's verse 11 uh, in verse 26, 32 are the two things I put there. So let me ask this first, let me ask this qu- question here. Um, what, what are you not doing right now for Jesus because you fear uh, for your safety? What are some things that you know God's calling you to, but you're like, that's not safe, I can't do that? The spread of God's name and fame does not always include our safety. And we can just look, go no further than the 12 disciples, the first 12 disciples to see that, whom every one of them died for their faith, except for John. Uh, and although he lived to an old ripe age, he was boiled in, an, uh, in, in hot oil and then exiled to the Isle of Patmos to live like a hermit the rest of his life. And he had to see the book of Revelation, which I would just imagine that's scary. <laughs> you know, that's like a scary thing to have to see, right? What is all this? I don't know. Let me write this down. Um, so like... I imagine that that's just like um, a scary little fate anyway. So we don't have to look any further than the first 12 disciples and Paul to realize that those whom God's hand is certainly upon didn't include safety. For us, whom I would assume since we have the Holy Spirit, God's hand is on us. His name and his fame being spread don't always include our safety as well. So safety does not necessarily equal in God's will. It doesn't. Telling people about Jesus at whatever the Lord's sovereignly bringing about equals, equals God's will. Sometimes that's safety, sometimes it's not. Now, if you're hearing that truth, which is, I think, a definite biblical truth about God's sovereignty, and you're thinking, that's just a tough 
pill to swallow for me, Fudd. That's difficult. I get it. And I, I, I understand. I'm not saying that, oh, you should just be like, yeah, okay, sure. God wants me to die. I'll do it tomorrow. That's fine. Um, I, I'm not saying that, that, that we're supposed to be that way, right? Um, but I will say this. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he tells us this. And I, I, 4 verse 17, God comforts us with his word. And God helps us understand uh, what are some of the greater sovereign purposes going on. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, among some others, but this is one of my favorite ones that God uses in his word to help us understand his sovereignty and his sovereign plan, and especially if it involves any kind of persecution for his name. It says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For these, and this is Paul talking about himself, and we know his afflictions, far worse than anything we'd ever have. For these, he calls them slight momentary affliction. Now, slight momentary affliction means difficult in your whole life. But when you compare that and compare it to all eternity, they are slight and momentary compared to all of eternity. You live here for 75 years. You live in heaven for 10,000s upon 10,000s upon 10,000 years. This is but a, a, a blink, a mist, a vapor in the wind compared to the blink that we'll live. And he says, for these slight momentary afflictions that we have right here are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Which means anything that we experience here to a negative degree when it comes to fearing for our safety and persecution that happens. If you were to take the reciprocal of that and amplify it about the the greatness that we'll experience whenever we're in front of Christ, it's beyond all comparison to the negative impact that we have here where we might experience suffering for Jesus. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I'll just make it really simple for you. Seeing Jesus face to face and experiencing the glory that we will have when we get to see him and know him forever is infinitely better and infinitely more worth it when it comes to wondering, should I risk right now for telling people about Jesus or living for Christ? Of course you should. Because if you happen to die for your faith or if you happen to be persecuted, anything that you experience is nothing compared to the glory of knowing Christ and seeing him, as it says here in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. So, light momentary afflictions are worth nothing compared to the eternity that will be beyond all, the glory that will be beyond all comparison. Now, as we're back to this last text, there's one last thing I want you to see in Acts 25. So, Acts 25, uh, he appeals to Caesar, and he tells him in verse 12, Festus said, conferred with his council, and he said, uh, to Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you will go. We should realize, uh, one other thing I want to say, um, in, in, in Philippians 2, 14, um, this is just a side note I was thinking about. Whenever I was a youth minister uh, and we went on trips, uh, the youth would always complain because 15-year-olds can't complain, not complain about everything in the world. And so uh, I had this verse uh, made onto a shirt in Philippians 2, 14, 2.14, it says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. It also says, like, arguing or complaining uh, in the NIV. And I had that shirt, literally. It was my, it was my youth uh, trip shirt. Whenever we would go, I would just wear it on the youth trip. So whenever they're complaining about Chick-fil-A or rushes or food or girls or boys or me being strict about bedtime or whatever, no cell phones, they complain. I was pointing to the shirt. I just, here it is right here. And we, now we're starting to get a degree of, like, an understanding of everything that Paul dealt with. And he wrote Philippians 2.14 during this time. 
in prison for two years, do all things without grumbling or questioning, without arguing or complaining. Like, if that's what Paul's experiencing and saying, do everything without arguing or questioning or grumbling or complaining, <laughs> then whatever we're experiencing, we certainly aren't anywhere close to what Paul is. And he's the one that even under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, you don't need to grumble or complain about life circumstances. So back to this. Um, so God's plans don't always include our safety. Now, when we get to verse 13 through 22, um, when we get to verse 13 through 22, Paul here, I'm sorry, Luke, as he's writing, is really just kind of taking those first uh, 12 verses and restating it. If you remember when we were reading it, what's happening is Festus is telling Agrippa everything that just happened in verses 1 through 12. So, um, Paul appeals to Caesar. He's going to go to Caesar. By the way, that would be Nero. Uh, not necessarily if you want to Google Nero later. Don't do it now. He's kind of a crazy fellow. Uh, he had this period where he reigned from 54 to 68, where by the end of his time, he just went crazy and started killing everybody. I think he was like mentally unstable. But lucky for Paul, he would be at the front end of going to see Nero uh, when he wasn't in his, his crazy years. Anyway, back to this. So verse 13 and following, um, this, is, uh, this is a time where Agrippa arrives. You can see now after some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice uh, arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And then there they explained, uh, Festus explains to Agrippa and Bernice what's going on. Let me explain to you a little bit about Agrippa and Bernice. So King Agrippa II, his dad was King Agrippa I, which was in Acts 12. Acts 12, uh, King Agrippa I, he's the one that killed James, the brother of Jesus, and imprisoned Peter. Their granddad was uh, Herod the Great. He's the one from Matthew chapter 2 that tried to kill all the babies, including Jesus. So he comes from a great gene line. He's, he's a real solid kind of fella. Um, no doubt he's, he's probably crazy. Um, he was a petty king. He was also familiar with a lot of kind of imperial politics and Jewish disputes. Not necessarily a great guy here whatsoever. Um, and certainly didn't come from a great dad or great granddad. Um, Bernice was his sister. Uh, Bernice was a widow uh, she was married to her uncle, so when she lost her husband, she also lost her uncle on the same day. Kind of weird. Uh, and to make it even worse, um, she, just to keep the incest going, rumors were rampant that Agrippa and her brother and sister were in an incestuous relationship. Uh, and here they arrive here. Uh, and you can all say, ooh, I think that's gross. I even literally wrote E-W here, ooh, um, in my notes. So, like, I, I think that's pretty disgusting. So uh, here we get to, here to uh, this particular arrival of them. And as they had been there many days, uh, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, telling him what's going on. So we can see it. You can just, you can go back and read it. But from verse 15 and following, he kind of lays down the, uh, the case. As I've already pointed out in verse 19, whenever he's summarizing that exchange between the Jews and Paul in verse 19, he, in his summary, and, and the thing that stuck out most in Festus's mind in their little dispute was, oh, they talked about this guy named Jesus. You know, in verse 19, which I think is just great. And then as he's telling him in verse 20, Festus is telling Agrippa, being at a lost how to investigate these questions on whether I should go to Jerusalem or he should be tried regarding them, uh, I don't know what to do. So, but when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, ordered to be held until I could send him to Caesar. So Agrippa, I, I want you to hear. And so Agrippa hears all this. Uh, and as he hears all this, he's totally intrigued. Like, this is, this is interesting. You know what? I think I want to hear about this. I think I want to hear all this before he's sent to Rome. So in verse 22, it says, Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. And then the answer, as he says, tomorrow you will hear him. So as Festus kind of lays out the case of Paul before Agrippa, 
Agrippa is gripped, no pun intended, by the story and uh, wants to hear from Paul himself. So when we're looking at this, um, I found this pretty interesting where Agrippa, as he hears Paul's case, uh, his interests are stirred and he says, I would like to hear the man myself, which brings me to my fifth point here regarding effective evangelism. And this is just about the way you kind of live your life. Number five, put it up. Now, faithful living for Jesus will stir the interest of unbelievers. I just think this to be honestly true. Whenever you are living your life in a God-glorifying way, and unbelievers hear about that, they're going to want to understand why. It's just the way it is. So, uh, if you were to just take a big, broad picture, step picture back, and I, wonder, uh, I wonder how I can be more effective at doing evangelism. Yes, it's going to the shops. Yes, it's going to the coffee. Yes, it's meeting your neighbors, taking them pies and french fries and whatever else you can make and telling them hey and getting to know them and talking about Jesus with them. But there's absolutely something to say about just faithful living for Christ in general. Killing sin, being joyful, knowing the gospel, raising your children the way that God would want, being a church member, like just the things that the Lord would want in your life as a faithful Christian. There's something about living a life like that that also makes unbelievers say, I want to understand that. I, I, they're going to ask you questions and you don't have to always, and we, I believe me, I know evangelism is very intentional about us trying to tell them, you're also going to get them. Faithful living for Christ will stir interest of unbelievers and they'll want to know. So, um, where in your life are you unfaithful? And how can you change that? Because there is absolutely something to say about faithful living. Now, I've been talking about evangelism, so I want to make sure. I mentioned these to my community group this past week. I want to mention these right now. If you, when you think about evangelism, evangelism say, I literally have no idea what to say. Talking uh, and even having a segue or a transition from hockey to gospel is hard for me or you know, whatever it is, crafts, whatever you do. I mean, whatever, it's fine. All of it's fine. Um, and you're like, I don't, know how to, I don't know how to segue. Here's two books that I mentioned to my community group, and maybe they'll be of help to you. One, uh, Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out is the name of it by Dr. Alvin Reed. He's an evangelism professor at the seminary. I'm actually studying under him. Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out. It, these are not necessarily these two books are not heavily theological when it comes to evangelism they're practical like and most of us just just give me something practical i need to read practical stuff one i've read this one and i I recommend it sharing jesus without freaking out the second one is in the mail it's coming to me i have not read it but one of my friends said this is one of the most practical books he's ever heard about sharing jesus and it's called turning everyday conversations into gospel conversations this is by Jimmy Scroggins. He was one of my professors as well. Uh, and just knowing him, I'm, I think this is a great book. Jimmy Scroggins is a pastor down in Florida. Um, and so he understands it from a pastoral perspective. Turning everyday conversations into gospel conversations. Those two books, there's many others. There's like a billion, right? But I'm just mentioning these two because they're super practical on how to, how to do stuff. Now, um, we, we see here in the text that Agrippa is wanting to see the man himself. Uh, I want to... I conclude by pointing out something that's been happening to Paul throughout this entire time and how it's mirroring uh, the life of Christ. And what I think Luke's doing when he's writing is this. Luke's just doing the exact same thing that he's seen every single other writer in the Bible do. So whenever he he reads the Old Testament and he sees um, Abraham, uh, he sees Abraham take as a father struggle with his son, but he's willing to sacrifice his son 
for, for, for God. He sees that and he says, oh, that's like, God, that's like God whenever God's willing to sacrifice his son. Or if he sees the story of Moses where Moses is the one that takes the, the Egyptians out of slavery and brings them into the promised land. Well, also, Jesus is the greater Moses where he is willing to not just take their people out of physical slavery into a, a tangible promised land, but take them out of spiritual slavery by dying on the cross and lead them to the real promised land, heaven, etc. So every Old Testament character is in somehow painting a picture of Jesus. Every Old Testament character, every Old Testament story is a shadow of everything about Jesus. And every one of those stories in the Old Testament kind of gives us the full picture and even more uh, about who Christ is. And I think that Luke's doing that exact same thing. Uh, I'm going to read a quote from Tony Marita saying this, one can't miss out on the parallels to Jesus's case here. Both Paul and Jesus were prosecuted before a Roman governor, governor, Pilate, or Festus, and then brought before the Jewish king, Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa. Uh, Both Paul and Jesus were found to be innocent, but Jesus would die at the hand of Pilate, and Paul would be sent to Rome uh, for for the trial, and he would actually die as well. Paul, whether he realizes it or not, is walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And let's just stop right here and conclude this way. Paul's not Jesus, though. And Paul would say that. I'm not Jesus. Paul's not Jesus, though, and he would tell you that exact same thing. Jesus Christ is the one that died for our sin so that we don't ever have to taste death. So we don't ever... There's a quote by Ada Tozer. He says, not death, but sin should be our great fear. Sin is what brings about death. So sin is a huge problem that every single one of us are infected by because we're all born in the line of Adam. And Jesus, Jesus is the one that died for our sin So that we would never have to taste death and all of our sin would be forgiven. So our king, our king Jesus, who has gone through all these exact things and he did it willingly. He went to the the, uh, cross. Our king Jesus has conquered death for all of us. And since he died on the cross in our place, we shall never ever taste death. But instead, we'll have life everlasting. And that's all the reason why we would want to live a life for him telling people about him. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. I pray that as we uh, go into the time where we celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper, as we think on your death uh, and your resurrection for us, God, that we would uh, celebrate and rejoice that you have done this for us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for all the stories that point us to you and what you've done. We pray now that we would uh, worship you in spirit and truth. We pray this in Jesus' name.